High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on, like anxiety, relationships, or big life transitions. You can also specify preferences around gender, race, faith, and more to help you find someone who's more likely to understand where you're coming from. Alma also makes it easy for therapists to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of providers in their directory accept insurance for sessions, so you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash notjustanyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash notjustanyone. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we continue our Star Wars series, in which we explore stories of Hollywood women during World War II. Last week, we talked about Betty Davis and the Hollywood Canteen, the nightclub for servicemen staffed by stars, which opened in the fall of 1942. Today, we're going to backtrack a bit to tell the story of the first American celebrity casualty of the war— which dovetails with the story of almost certainly the most famous soldier to be gently pushed out of the U.S. armed forces for being a nuisance. Today, we're going to tell the story of Carol Lombard and Clark Gable. Carol Lombard was the queen of screwball comedy, a genre which really only became a thing thanks to It Happened One Night, the film for which Gable, Lombard's second husband, won an Oscar. But Lombard's career as a screen comedienne long predated her involvement with Gable, a man whose mythos was so grand that in Hollywood he was known simply as the king. 
She was discovered at 12, signed her first studio contract at 16, and after surviving a near-fatal car accident at 17, Lombard became a slapstick silent starlet. By the time she hooked up with Gable, she was already divorced from another major male star, and she was a Hollywood veteran who had successfully remade herself in the model of the ultimate screwball dame. By the time Gable met Lombard, he was on his second wife, and about halfway through a phenomenal decade-long run as the movie industry's most marketable stud, a run which would hit its peak with Gone with the Wind in 1939. But Gable felt pressure to live his persona off-screen as well as on, and that led to tension in his marriage to Lombard. Tension which may have played a role in her untimely death at the age of 33, a disaster after which Clark Gable was never again the same. Join us, won't you? as we tell the story of the brief life and horrible death of Carol Lombard and its impact on Clark Gable. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture, until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano, is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash High and Low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Y-M-R-T for a whole month of great cinema for free. Carol Lombard was born Alice Jane Peters in Indiana. Her family moved to Los Angeles, and at age 12, she was discovered by director Alan Dwan and cast in a film called A Perfect Crime. And after that, nothing much happened for a while. She signed a contract with Fox when she was 16, and they changed boring Alice Peters into the vaguely exotic Carol Lombard. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed beauty was on the brink of a breakthrough in 1925 when John Barrymore hand-selected Carol to star with him in a film of The Tempest, and Howard Hawks gave her a plum-supporting role in a film called The Road to Glory. But while she was shooting the latter film— the first of several life-defining disasters occurred. It was an October night, and the vivacious 17-year-old went for a ride with a boy. Carol later described what happened next like this. You know how it is with some guys. They think a car is like a part of their body, and they want to show you how hot it is. So all of a sudden, wham. And I remember how I thought it was just beautiful, like a fireworks explosion, just glass in a terrific pattern. And then I passed out. Carol's mom, Bess, knew how much her daughter desired to be a star. And so as soon as it was determined that Carol would survive the crash, Bess did her best to make sure Carol's beauty survived too. She got the best plastic surgeon she could find on the case, 
And he practiced on Carol an extremely experimental new procedure without anesthesia. When it was over, Carol was told that if she managed to keep her head strapped down in the same position for the next six months, living on a liquid diet and submitting to daily doctor-supervised dressing changes, then maybe, just maybe, the procedure would take and she'd not have to live the rest of her life as a total freak. Her chances of ever again making a good impression on a camera seemed rather slim. In the end, Carol was left with a small but noticeable scar on her left cheek. Fox canceled her contract, but Carol was not deterred. She figured out how to do her hair and makeup to distract away from the scar, and she started pounding the pavement. She eventually landed work with Max Sennett, king of the silent two-reel comedy. Sennett's brand of comedy was highly physical, and he shot most of his big gags in medium or long shots, so he didn't care about Carol's scar. He needed a bathing beauty for his company, meaning a girl with gams who was willing to use her body to get a laugh. There was nothing wrong with Carol's legs, and she was nothing if not game. The next few years were a seesaw. When the silent film market crashed, Senate's stature as a hitmaker went with it. But Joe Kennedy liked the look of Lombard, and he signed her to a contract at Pathé, and Howard Hughes took Carol to bed while considering her for the part in Hell's Angels that eventually went to Jean Harlow. Soon enough, though, both Kennedy and Hughes dropped Lombard. But then Paramount picked her up, giving her a seven-year contract, which would carry her into stardom. Lombard made westerns, melodramas, musicals, and she didn't make much of an impression in any of them. Meanwhile, she used her time off to play the field, having affairs with, amongst others, Preston Sturges. Then, she was cast opposite William Powell in a movie called Man of the World. 22-year-old Carol loved being a bachelorette, but Powell wooed her hard, and by June 1931, the 40-something Powell had himself a wife. Most of Powell's friends thought Carol was something between a floozy and a gold digger. In truth, she was young and incredibly restless. She'd work all day and then could barely sit still long enough to spend a night with her middle-aged husband. No one was surprised when the marriage started to go south pretty much right away. But Powell and Lombard would stay best friends for the rest of her life. By the mid-1930s, Carol Lombard had never starred in a film that had lost money kind of a feat during the Depression. But she had also never had a real hit. If she had retired at this point, she might have been forgotten. And then it happened one night happened. Carol Lombard wasn't even in the movie, but Frank Capra's road romance invented a new subgenre. The screwball comedy, films full of courtship and innuendo, satire and farce, which came to define the battle of the sexes in the period between the two world wars. It happened one night, won Best Picture, Best Actress, and Best Actor at the Academy Awards. And in a rush to capitalize on its phenomenal success, Columbia pushed another screwball comedy straight into production. 20th Century was about a theater producer and his wacky Galatea, the part for which Columbia wanted to borrow Lombard from Paramount. The picture would reunite Lombard with the two men who, before her disfiguring crash, were supposed to help launch her career. Actor John Barrymore, who was now sliding down a boozy slope into uncastability, and the great director Howard Hawks. 
Hawks would say that he cast Carol in 20th Century after watching her at a party, watching her tossing back champagne, gabbing a mile a minute, swearing like a sailor, dubbing new and old friends alike with daffy nicknames, chain smoking and pacing and thinking faster than she could speak, and she could speak pretty fast. On screen, she was just another pretty girl. And if he was being honest, she wasn't even the prettiest, although she never balked at showing a little more leg or going braless in a slinky gown. But off screen, she always seemed to be enchanting and almost confounding everyone around her. And no one had captured that on screen before. Maybe that was because Carol seemed to be incapable of projecting her real, fiery personality when the cameras were rolling. Off screen, she'd be giggling and goofing off, pulling pranks. Then Hawks would yell action, and she'd freeze up. Her performance, initially, was stiff and phony. And then Hawks called her on it. He pulled her aside from shooting a scene in which her character was supposed to become infuriated with Barry Morris. What would she do if a man spoke to her like that in real life? Hawks asked. Why, I'd kick him in the nuts, Carol said. Hawks told her to go back out there and kick John Barrymore in the nuts. And if she didn't, he'd fire her and get a girl who would. Carol did as she was told, and a star was born. 20th Century wasn't a big box office hit. Its heroes were Broadway elites who didn't do much to impress middle American audiences. But the critics loved it, and they championed Carol Lombard's performance as a potentially career-remaking feat. And so the actress started cultivating a new persona. She was tired of being the second-tier starlet you'd call when Jean Harlow or Miriam Hopkins turned down a role. As the age of screwball dawned, Carol Lombard launched a campaign to prove that she was Hollywood's most madcap girl. She was incredibly savvy about publicity and a daily reader of the trades. And she knew that if she was pictured in the press as the kind of character that she wanted to play in movies, then those roles would start rolling in. She started throwing lavish theme parties, a barnyard party, then a hospital party where she tried to get all of her guests to change out of their evening attire and into hospital gowns. That one wasn't so popular. She rented out the entire amusement park on the pier between Santa Monica and Venice Beach and invited all of Hollywood's A-list. She didn't make a movie for six months. At the end of her calculated party hiatus, Carol Lombard had attracted the attention of Ernst Lubitsch, the master of innuendo-laden musicals and comedies, who at that point was running Paramount. Lubitsch started giving Lombard the kind of parts previously reserved for It Happened One Night star Claudette Colbert, pairing Lombard with Fred McMurray in two new screwballs. And then Lubitsch was fired. But Lombard had found her niche. In January 1936, Carol Lombard was selected as the honorary hostess of the annual White Mayfair Ball, Hollywood's first social event of the new year. It was that night that Carol first hooked up with the man who would become her second husband and her widower. At 35, Clark Gable was the epitome of Hollywood's idea of the ideal male specimen. 
His first wife, Josephine Dillon, had been an acting teacher who had molded his voice and his ability to control his body. And when he got to Hollywood in 1930, MGM took care of the rest, fixing up his external package up to and including giving him all new teeth. Privately, Clark Gable was obsessive-compulsive, full of self-loathing and anxiety. But nobody knew it because he was so good at seduction. In any social situation, he deflected attention from him onto whomever he was with, making the other person feel like the star. This was hardly generosity on Gable's part. It was self-defense. It kept him from having to reveal the real him. Gable had dumped Josephine Dillon to marry an heiress named Rhea Franklin. The couple were still married in 1933 when Gable began a long affair with actress Joan Crawford. They were still married in 1935 when Gable started sleeping with Loretta Young, his co-star in Call of the Wild, who eventually gave birth to Gable's love child, whom he never acknowledged. And Clark and Rhea were estranged, but still married by 1936, when Gable and Lombard hooked up at the White Ball. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Carol Lombard's account of how she and Gable got together reads like a page out of a script of one of her screwball sex farces, albeit slightly more blatant than the production code would probably allow. We didn't have too simple a time getting going, me and Clark, because when we first started messing around, he was tied up elsewhere, and so was I, sort of. So we used to go through the goddamnedest routine you ever heard of. He'd get somebody to go hire a room or a bungalow somewhere, like on the outskirts, a couple times the Beverly Hills Hotel, but that could only be at night. Then the somebody would give him a key. Then he'd have another key made and give it to me. Then we'd arrange a time, and he'd get there. Then I'd get there. Or I'd get there, and then he'd get there. Then all of the shades down, and all the doors, and all the windows locked, and then the phone shut off, and then we'd have a drink or something sometimes not, and would get going. Finally, he got unglued, and I did too, and we thought, what the hell, we might as well get married. But would you believe it? After we were married, we couldn't ever make it unless we went somewhere and locked all the doors and put down all the window shades and shut off all the phones. Don't you love it? Shortly after hooking up with Gable, Carol made two of her best films, one of which would truly cement her legacy as the queen of screwball comedy— Universal had arranged to borrow William Powell from MGM for a picture about a Manhattan rich boy who goes slumming at the dump and ends up working as a butler for an eccentric Fifth Avenue family whose screwy youngest daughter falls in love with him. Powell said he'd only do the movie if his ex-wife was cast as the screwy love interest. And that's how Carol Lombard ended up in My Man Godfrey. Is this where you sleep? That's the general purpose of the room. Any observations? Oh, I think it's very cute, but we'll have to change the wallpaper. What do you mean, we'll have to change oh, the wallpaper? Oh, I don't like green wallpaper. It makes me failure. And you won't have to look at it. You're going home right now. But I can't go home. Why not? I can't go home after what happened. What happened? You know what happened just as well as I do. Now, see here. You suppose... Oh, go on and lose your temper. I love it when you lose your temper. Why can't you let me alone? Because you're my responsibility. 
responsibility and someone has to take care of you. I can take care of myself. You can't look me in the eye and say that. You love me and you know it. You know, there's no sense in struggling against a thing when it's got you. It's got you and that's all there is to it. It's got you. My Man Godfrey is maybe the quintessential screwball comedy of the 1930s. It satirizes the rich, not just for their frivolous excesses and their general uselessness, but also for their narcissistic whims of charity. It humanizes the poor, the working man, and the quote-unquote forgotten men who have been othered by their inability to find a Depression-era job. It's incredibly sexy and romantic and yet free of visual depictions of sex or romance. For much of its running time, it indulges in what seems like absolute social anarchy, as the socialite's passion for the hobo-turned-butler seems to threaten to upend the entire class structure. And then in the end, the hobo-butler turns out to be from a good family, and the socialite loves him anyway, and thus, order is restored. Carol was nominated for her only Oscar for this film, and she followed it up with the comparatively forgotten, but really super interesting technicolor comedy, Nothing Sacred. Nothing Sacred is dated, and in parts, kind of cringe-worthily politically incorrect, but it was also incredibly groundbreaking. Directed by William Wellman, it was the first color film to use certain special effects, like rear projection. And some of the camera work is really stunning. Wellman and cinematographer W. Howard Green seem unafraid to let the image go dark, or otherwise obscure what in another film would be at the center of the frame, in order to give the scene layers of intrigue. Written primarily by Ben Hecht, with contributions from Dorothy Parker and other New York intellectuals turned Hollywood serfs, it was also a super ahead-of-its-time media satire. Nothing Sacred did well at the box office, but it had also been expensive to make, so it didn't make money. But for Carol, it did better than that. It proved that her new brand of comic allure not only wasn't a fluke, but also it would play in color. And because three made a trend even way back then, nothing sacred coming after 20th Century and My Man Godfrey made Carol Lombard a poster child of a certain kind of movie of the 1930s, a subgenre of films which were class-conscious, but also, despite occasional levels of lunacy that rivaled the Marx Brothers, had a conscience about how they satirized an American culture in which the unequal playing field was more visible than it had ever been before. Maybe movies couldn't single-handedly solve the class war, but the best of the screwball comedies modeled a wishful fantasy of one kind of parody. They depicted women who could match or even best their man in any fight. Nothing Sacred literalizes this dynamic in an incredible scene in which Frederick March's journalist convinces Carol Lombard's adorable accidental con artist that he needs to punch her in the face in order to prevent her from being revealed as a fraud. It doesn't work, and it's Lombard who gets to deliver the knockout punch. Nothing Sacred was released in 1937, which began a stretch of a few rough years for Carol Lombard. Jean Harlow, who was Carol's friend, Clark Gable's sometime co-star, and William Powell's new love, died suddenly at the age of 26 of kidney failure. And Carol's career surge screeched to a halt with a couple of flops. She still managed to get on the cover of Life magazine in October 1938, 
although that might have owed to her famous declaration around that time that she was proud to pay 80% of her income in taxes. Then, in late 1938, just as Gable was forced to begin shooting a movie he hated, a little picture called Gone with the Wind, the Hollywood scandal sheets suddenly started shaming the actor for living in sin with Lombard while he was technically still married to someone else. Gable and Lombard had been together for three years at this point, and obviously Clark Gable had never been personally morally compelled to officially break with one woman before keeping time with another. But Carol Lombard was different. She had none of the pretense of his previous Hollywood conquests. She laughed all the time, and she made him laugh. She was the kind of girl you get a divorce for, even if it means letting your jilted second wife rob you blind in divorce court. In March 1939, Gable and Lombard eloped. Carol started calling Gable, Pa, and in turn, he called her, Ma. They bought a ranch in Encino and settled in. Clark Gable had been cast as Rhett Butler because he was the closest thing Hollywood had to an example of unimpeachable manhood. But Carol got to know the real Clark Gable, the cripplingly insecure Gable, the one who shut everyone out, hated crowds, held grudges, couldn't speak in public, and was so afraid of banks that he'd carry thousands of dollars in cash with him at all times. Carol Lombard's best and worst quality was her absolute fearlessness. But she didn't begrudge her husband his weaknesses. She coached him through his red carpet appearances and even broke up with her longtime agent, Myron Selznick, in order to spare her husband from having to deal with Myron's brother, David O. Selznick, who Gable had built up into his enemy during the long Gone with the Wind shoot. All of this, Carol thought, was worth it to be the queen of the man thought of as the king of Hollywood. And not just because Carol was ambitious. She told writer-director Garson Kanan, I just think about that husband of mine all the time. I'm really stuck on the bastard. And it isn't all that great lover crap, because if you want to know the truth, I've had better. No, I'm nuts about him. And not just nuts about his nuts. As their parental nicknames might indicate, Gable and Lombard were eager to start a family. But despite rigorous effort, Lombard had trouble getting pregnant. She had at least two miscarriages. Meanwhile, Gable was incapable of sexual fidelity. And for the most part, this was another weakness which Lombard abided. She looked the other way when he began a long affair with actress Virginia Grey. Lombard seemed to rationalize this sort of thing as just what her husband needed to do to maintain the ego that it took to be Clark Gable for a living. But then came Lana Turner, a 25-year-old blonde who became known as the Sweater Girl. Lana Turner was famously discovered at a soda fountain and transformed into an overnight star. When Turner was cast opposite Gable in a movie called Honky Tonk, Lombard could not contain her jealousy. If ever there were a symbol of a commoner threatening the throne of a queen, this was it. Truly the Brangelina of their day, Clark and Carol were a constant subject of fascination, no matter what movies they were making. But by the early 1940s, Gable was still riding high on the unprecedented success of Gone with the Wind, 
and Lombard's career seemed to be in a tailspin. She thought about retiring to start a family, and then she couldn't start a family. She was afraid she was losing her husband to a floozy a decade her junior, and a plebe floozy at that. She was totally at loose ends. And then America went to war. Actually, Lombard was on the brink of a comeback by the time the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. She had starred in Alfred Hitchcock's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which did well on its release in 1941. Lombard then reteamed with Ernst Lubitsch to make To Be or Not To Be, a satire about a troupe of actors who plot to foil Nazis in Poland. Lombard was well aware of what was going on in Europe. Shane Gable had happened to be visiting the White House the night FDR gave his Arsenal of Democracy speech. And she saw To Be or Not To Be as a call to arms to an America which was, for the most part, contentedly isolationist until the war arrived on its shores. The patriot who had happily boasted that her enormous tax bill went for a good cause was given new purpose once her country was at war. Immediately after Pearl Harbor, Lombard urged Gable to write to the president, offering their services in any way he saw fit. To Gable's relief, FDR wrote back that the movie stars should stay where they were and concentrate on doing what they did best entertaining the nation. Instead, Gable was named the head of the Hollywood Victory Committee, and the reluctant leader's first act was to nominate his wife to spearhead the effort to sell war bonds. In January 1942, she would travel by train across the country to Indianapolis, making whistle-stop presentations along the way. In Indianapolis, she'd be the star attraction at a bond sales rally, the first real war rally since the U.S. joined the fight. Then she'd hop on a train west and be back in L.A. for a sneak preview of To Be or Not To Be on January 19th. Carol was told that it was imperative that she make this trip by train, and not just because it would allow for more promotional stops. Airplanes were just too dangerous. Commercial coast-to-coast air travel was all but brand new, and with a big star on board, on official government business no less, any plane with her on it became a potential target for sabotage. So Lombard planned a one-week journey by train on which she'd be accompanied by her mother Bess and Otto Winkler, Gable's personal publicist at MGM. A free agent at this point, Carol had no personal publicist of her own, and Gable couldn't go on the trip because he was scheduled to start shooting a new film that week in Hollywood. Gable and Lombard had never spent more than five days apart in the six years they had been together. But Carol didn't inherently object to taking this trip without her husband. What she objected to was that the movie that was keeping him in L.A. again co-starred Lana Turner. The marrieds had a big fight the night before Carol's departure, and come morning, she left without saying goodbye. She did, however, give her live-in secretary a stack of love letters and instructions that one was to be delivered to Mr. Gable every day that Carol was gone. And when Carol got to her hotel in Indianapolis on January 14th, she found her room full of roses, courtesy of the King of Hollywood. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Over the course of Lombard's single day of campaigning in Indianapolis, $2 million worth of war bonds were sold. Exhilarated by this success and anxious to get home to her apparently contrite husband before Lana Turner could get her hooks into him, Carol announced to Otto Winkler that she had made an executive decision. Instead of boarding a train in the morning, they were going to fly home that night. In October 1940, a movie Carol starred in called They Knew What They Wanted was scheduled to premiere at Radio City in New York. Carol's publicist at the time, Russell Birdwell, came up with a scheme to turn the opening of that movie into hard news. They'd photograph Carol in Los Angeles boarding a plane to New York for the premiere. And then after a couple of hours, they'd release a report that the plane had gone missing. Birdwell was confident that he could string the national media along for 12 hours. Easy. Then all of a sudden, Carol and the pilot would emerge from some clearing somewhere in the middle of the country, having miraculously survived a crash landing. Birdwell figured the ginned-up accident would be on the cover of all of the papers for days, buying they knew what they wanted, the kind of publicity that money could not. Carol must have recognized the similarities between Birdwell's scheme and the media satire she had starred in just a few years earlier, nothing sacred, and she loved the idea. In the end, it was only nixed because the studio deemed it too costly. Two years later, Garson Kanan, the director of They Knew What They Wanted, saw a newsstand plastered with headlines about a plane crash involving Carol Lombard. He hoped that Birdwell had finally found someone willing to pay for his scheme and that Carol Lombard would emerge from the Nevada mountains in 12 hours unscathed. She did not. Carol, her mother, and her husband's publicist, both of whom were mortally afraid to fly, were booked on TWA Flight 3, carrying mostly Army personnel and mail. It was scheduled to depart Indianapolis at 3 a.m. Friday morning and arrive in Burbank around 7 p.m. on Friday night. Bess was not pleased. She knew in numerology, three was a bad omen. And not only were they on flight three, leaving at 3 a.m., but her daughter was age 33. Carol's mother begged her not to get on the plane. Carol got on the plane, and Winkler and Bess could only follow. The plane had to make several scheduled stops. In St. Louis, Kansas City, Amarillo... There were weather delays, refueling delays, delays related to the mail that the plane had been scheduled to carry. At one stop in Albuquerque, all civilians were ordered to switch to another flight to make room for more army men. 
but Carol pulled the Don't You Know Who I Am card, and her party of three were allowed to keep their seats. With a full load of passengers, many of them army guys with full packs in tow, and one of them a movie star with multiple trunks of clothes and jewels, the plane was somewhat overweight, and a stop was needed for refueling between New Mexico and California. Ordinarily, this stop would have been made in Boulder City, but sunlight was running out, and there was no chance of making it to Boulder City, an airstrip with no lights, before nightfall. So instead, the plane was diverted to Las Vegas for its final stop. It made the final stop without incident. Thirteen minutes after Flight 3 took off from McCarran Airport en route to Burbank, the plane crashed into a mountain and exploded into a ball of fire. Witnesses described the fire as fully apocalyptic, an inferno visible from miles and miles away. There would eventually be a long investigation, and the threat of sabotage could never be fully ruled out. In fact, Orson Welles would say decades later that insiders knew Nazis had brought down the plane and that FDR had covered it up so as to not cause a nationwide panic. But there were two much more mundane issues. First, the beacon, usually illuminated on the mountain in question after dark, had been turned out due to wartime blackout restrictions. And also, the co-pilot had failed to rework the flight plan after it was decided that the stop en route to Burbank would be Vegas and not Boulder City. The plane had thus gone way off course and was flown straight into a mountain that the pilots probably never saw. Clark Gable was so giddy to reunite with his wife after their fight that he had driven himself to Burbank to await her arrival and was there early, fixing drinks out of the portable bar in his car. At some point, he got word that the flight was delayed, and he returned to his ranch in Encino to await word that the plane had landed in Burbank. That word never came. Instead, a little while later, two top executives from MGM, Eddie Mannix and Ralph Wheelwright, showed up at the Gable and Lombard Ranch, unannounced and uninvited. When Clark saw them, his face drained of color. He knew something was wrong. The execs asked Gable to come with them. The plane had disappeared from the sky and had been replaced by fire. The MGM execs had chartered their own plane to go to Nevada to look for it. In Vegas, the entourage checked into the El Rancho Motel, and Gable started drinking and chain-smoking and not eating and waiting for the confirmation that his wife had died. His friend Spencer Tracy drove out to Vegas with three bottles of Chivas Regal to keep Gable company. By Sunday, Gable had developed a nervous tremor, and he was determined to climb up the mountain and go look for Ma himself. This was something MGM could not allow. It was too dangerous. The crash site was almost inaccessible. A four-hour hike up the side of a cliff, straight up. So Mannix and Wheelwright volunteered to go in Gable's stead, following the teams of investigators, reporters, and rescuers already headed up to the wreckage to sort through the debris. When they finally made it up there, they found few intact bodies, and certainly no survivors. 
Most of the passengers had been essentially cremated. Some had been torn limb from limb. Finally, a smashed and charred face was found with a few intact strands of blonde hair. Near the body were two identifying details. A nearly burned-to-dust packet of papers detailing a schedule of events in Indianapolis and a fragment of a ruby and diamond pin. That was Gable and Lombard's thing. Pa always gave Ma rubies. Mannix returned to the El Rancho Motel and put the ruby fragment in Gable's hand. Carol Lombard was dead, and Clark Gable, the strongest man on movie screens, proceeded to fall apart. He blamed himself, of course. Carol had been rushing home to see him, which was only so urgent because they had fought, and they had only fought because he couldn't allay her fears about Lana Turner. Or really, because he couldn't just give all of himself to Carol, which now seemed nuts, because now it was so clear that Carol Lombard was the only woman he had ever truly loved. Gable was despondent for months. By the time Carol was buried, he had lost tons of weight. He looked like he had aged 10 years. Weeks after the funeral, he finally managed to move back into the Encino Ranch, but he kept Carol's room intact. Everything just as it was, the door locked. He ate alone every night. When journalist Adela Rogers St. John stopped by and asked him why he didn't invite friends over to eat with him, he acted like he couldn't begin to figure out how one would even do that. He said, Ma always did that. He continued to drink heavily. He reignited his affair with Joan Crawford, if only for comfort. He wore a locket around his neck, containing the ruby fragment and a clipping of the blonde hair found at the crash site. And then, on a special dispensation that looked over his advanced age of 41, in the summer of 1942, Clark Gable managed to enlist in the army. Nobody thought that this was an act of patriotism. Maybe he thought this is what Ma, so gung-ho about the war effort, would have wanted. Maybe he just had to do something and was looking for structure or distraction. Maybe, probably, according to those who witnessed him around this time, Clark Gable was suicidal. He attended Officers Candidate School for 13 weeks and then shipped out to Europe, where he was put in charge of shooting a documentary designed to help recruit aerial gunners. In May of 1943, he missed a lethal bullet by an inch. He volunteered for the most dangerous missions he could find, as if hoping not to make it back to Hollywood alive. But he didn't die. Instead, he shot tons of Technicolor film. And in October 1943, the Air Force decided that 42-year-old Captain Clark Gable was a distraction. He didn't exactly blend in. Everybody knew who Clark Gable was. Everybody, including Adolf Hitler. There were rumors that Gable was Hitler's favorite actor, and that Hitler had put out the word that anybody who captured Gable alive would get a hefty cash reward. 
Gable seemed seriously afraid that Adolf Hitler was going to put him in a cage like a gorilla. And the U.S. Army was afraid that any plane Gable was on now became an exponentially more valuable target. And he was sent back to Hollywood to edit his film. In January 1944, he helped to christen a new warship, the SS Carol Lombard. Gable was asked to speak at the ceremony, but he refused. He just stood there weeping. A year later, still essentially unemployable and having been off movie screens for nearly three years, Gable drunkenly crashed his car on Sunset Boulevard in the middle of the night. The accident was kept quiet, and soon he returned to playing the field. He married twice more to two women who tried valiantly to come between Gable and the memory of the wife he had lost, to little avail. In 1954, Gable was dropped from his contract at MGM, and he made eight more films as an independent, the most notable being John Huston's The Misfits, a film to which a future episode of this podcast will surely be devoted. Days after the movie wrapped, Clark Gable died of a heart attack. His final wife, Kay, honored the king's wishes and had him interred next to Carol Lombard. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it any way you can. You can rate and review us on iTunes. You can tweet about us. Our Twitter handle is at RememberThisPod. And we'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.